All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this time together that we may come and study your word in freedom. We're thankful that we have a nation that still honors the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that we have freedom to gather, freedom to assemble, freedom to preach, proclaim, to teach your word, to believe as we will, uh, and without government interference. Father, we pray that this might continue. We continue to pray for government leaders that you might restrain and restrain the evil influences upon them and that you might restrain their hands in doing that which further diminishes the freedom that we have. Father, we pray that you would raise up men and women who can lead this nation and who will have clear thinking and not be self-serving, but servants of the people and servants of the law. Father, we pray for us this morning as we study your word that we might be challenged by what we study, that we may gain a greater understanding and appreciation of who our Savior is and the role and the significance of that role in our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have always loved going to movies. Ever since I was a kid, I loved going to movies, and until, I don't know, maybe the last decade, the movies really haven't been quite up to par. But one of the things I always loved about going to see a movie at the movie theater was to see the the uh, previews of coming attractions, to watch all the trailers, to find out what was coming out, especially if I knew something was coming out that I was anticipating, then I could finally see what they had uh, what they had done with it and whether it looked like it might be a good film or not. And so I've always loved those previews of coming attractions. Well, that's what we get in this passage today is a, is a preview of the coming attraction at the end of Chapter 16, and then we get a trailer uh, that covers the first part of Chapter 17, focusing on the future kingdom. And it is as uh, it is a snapshot for us as it were, of what the kingdom is going to be like, just a foretaste of the kingdom. And Jesus is giving this to his disciples to strengthen their faith, give them a little more understanding of what is taking place, reinforcing what he has taught since Matthew 13, that the kingdom is not going to come now. The kingdom is not here in any way, shape, or form. There's not a spiritualized form of the kingdom. There's not a mystery form of the kingdom, as I've taught. The kingdom is future. The kingdom was a literal, physical uh 
political kingdom that was going to be on the earth. Jesus would be reigning from a literal throne of David in a literal Jerusalem. And this was what was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. It's very, very clear that this was what was to come. And this is what was offered by John the Baptist and then by Jesus and then by his disciples to the Jewish people. But we reach that 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 climax in chapter 12 when the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus, said he performed his miracles, and the power of Beelzebul attributed his, his power to Satan. And at that point, Jesus announces that they've committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is a rejection of the kingdom, assigning the power of Satan to the Messiah, and that from that point on, the kingdom was never offered to Israel again prior to the crucifixion. That's going to be reoffered in Acts, but at this point, there's no reoffering of the kingdom. The kingdom is postponed, and it isn't going to come. And last time we looked at this, and we saw that in this, the buildup to what occurs in chapter 17 really starts in verse 13 of chapter 16, kind of the end of the previous section where Jesus is training his disciples, and it culminates uh, uh, at the at that that situation that occurs in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus is teaching, and and, and what Matthew is focusing on in this section from Matthew 16:13. Uh, through the episode where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And dealing with, uh, interacting with Peter's answers that you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, to the, uh, Jesus' next statement related to his coming crucifixion and that it's necessary for him to be, uh, to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and to be killed and then to be raised on the third day. Well, which they still couldn't get their their minds around at all. They just couldn't grasp that, and Peter steps in and makes a fool of himself. It really is a good thing that we have Peter because most of us can identify with him because we sort of make spiritual fools of ourselves every now and then. And so so if it weren't for Peter, we would think we were in real trouble. But um, uh, there's that interaction between Peter and the Lord, and then the Lord tells them uh, again that he is going to be going to the cross, sets forth a condition for discipleship, not salvation. Uh, every person who believes in Jesus Christ receives a free gift of salvation. We don't do anything to earn or deserve it. Salvation is by uh, uh, grace alone through faith. It is a free gift. But once we're saved, there are still responsibilities for each and every believer. And if you want to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, if you really want to be a disciple, then there are things that we must do. We must accept that, that we've been given a new life and there's responsibilities associated with that new life and their challenges related to that life. And we have to learn to submit to the authority of God. Uh, we can't just live our lives without uh, concern or care for these obligations that the Lord has placed on us as new members of his royal family. And so these different uh, conditions that are placed upon discipleship by our Lord in the Gospels are simply saying it's great that you're saved, you're a member of the family, but if you're going to act like a member of the family, this is what is expected of you if you really want to follow me. And he, again, he's going to use this idiom of taking up our cross and following him. And that's misunderstood and misused a lot. But the imagery that we have historically from the time of Rome, is that when there was a criminal who had 
uh, egregiously violated the, the authority of Rome and gone against Rome, then in order to demonstrate uh, to everyone of the, the power and the authority of Rome, then he was to uh, carry his cross to the execution place. And so this idea of taking up your cross uh, doesn't refer to just anything. It refers specifically as an idiom at that time for uh, someone who was being forced or someone who was submitting to the authority of whomever. And so Jesus is using this as an idiom that if you want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have to submit to to God's authority. We have to be willing to... Uh, submit and humble ourselves by obedience, which is what we'll see emphasized in our corollary passage uh, passage this morning. And so, a focus on all on on this setup at the end of chapter sixteen is to help the the disciples understand that that contemporary ideas of the Messiah were that the Messiah would come in glory and he would defeat the enemies of Israel and establish his kingdom. But what Jesus is, is emphasizing is that no, this isn't the, the this isn't the, the the way it's laid out in Scripture. The crown doesn't come before the cross, or the crown doesn't come without the cross. The crown comes after the cross. First the cross, then the crown, and that the Messiah must come and and first suffer before he is glorified. And the emphasis on his glory comes secondary here. We see it mentioned in verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. That's, as I pointed out last time, that's the first clear statement that there's going to be a, a suffering and death, that's verse 21, followed by another future coming, and that's verse 27. And so in this section, getting into uh, the first part of Matthew 17, we're going to see the the teaching on the glory of the God-man. A place where this is taking place is in the north of Israel. Uh, Jesus has taken his disciples, according to Matthew 16, 13, up to uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's basically a Roman city. Uh, but uh, it's located, was built there to honor Caesar by Philip the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod. And as I pointed out last time, it's a great backdrop where Jesus is using the natural surroundings to teach a, a doctrinal point. And so he's emphasizing this this huge rock escarpment there, and then there's a play on words with Peter the rock, and, and on this rock I will build my church. But he's just playing off of the surroundings. And then the big dark hole you see on the left in the back was a opened into a huge chasm, and, and at that time there was a, temp, a Roman temple there to the god Pan, and that was thought, a, thought to be the gates of Hades. So you can see, as you read through this, if you... Uh, you can understand the passage without knowing the physical surroundings, but once you understand the physical surroundings, it kind of opens up the, uh, the dialogue a, a little bit. So Jesus emphasizes that, that the next thing on the time scale, time, timeline is that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be uh, tortured, he's going to be crucified and, and killed, and then he's going to be buried, and then he will be raised on the third day. But they just don't hear that. Peter doesn't hear that. And he just says, no, no, Lord, none of this can happen to you, at which point Jesus says, you're taking Satan's role, you're operating on human viewpoint, 
and you have to get with the plan. And he harshly rebukes him for that. And, of course, then Jesus uh, goes on to talk about those who truly follow him must be willing to take up their cross, deny themselves, quit living life for yourself, live it for the Lord, and follow follow him. And then he gives a a one-line, a tagline in verse 28, which gives a... Uh, a bit of a preview of coming attractions uh, right now. And he says, Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that is a, a tantalizing line because he's indicating that if you're, if you're one of them, remember they're not really getting clued into a lot of things. The more they learn, the more confused they are. And they say, oh, well, they'd be thinking, well, we're going to see the kingdom. It's not going to be, it's postponed, but maybe not that far. And then, then there's that, then if they thought any further, they would say, wait a minute. The way he said that was that some will taste death, but some won't taste death. So there's some of us maybe who, who are going to die. And if they thought about it much more, uh, then they would be, be a little, little, uh, concerned about who it is who might live, but they didn't really have much of a chance, uh, to respond to that. Although they may have discussed it, because as we'll see at the end of verse one, after six days go by between this statement and what occurs on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then Jesus says that that some of you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that phrase is is pregnant with significance. The term Son of Man comes out of Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven, Daniel sees these these visions of the future kingdoms that are going to come. He, he understands that the Persians are going to come, and then the Persians are going to be replaced by the Greeks, and then the Greeks are going to be replaced, uh, be replaced by the Romans, and there's something really unusual about this, this future Roman, uh, this future kingdom that's Rome because it, it, it is depicted as this voracious monster that has ten horns, and we understand that it, it is picturing not only the Roman Empire of history, but also the uh, restored or revived Roman Empire that will come uh, at the end of history. And then Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God. And the throne room of God, he sees the Son of Man. And that title, Son of Man, emphasizes the humanity of this figure. And the Son of Man is the Messiah. This is a messianic title. It's the it's Jesus' most favorite, most common term to describe himself. Again and again and again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man then approaches uh, a figure called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, and the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And the Son of Man uh, approaches the Ancient of Days and requests the kingdom and then the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to the Son. Now, this is all yet future, because the picture we see of Jesus during the church age is what? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is seated waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for the time to come when he will request of the Father the kingdom. 
And that time period, which is yet future to us, is what's pictured in Daniel chapter 7. And the Son of Man requests the kingdom, and the, the Father gives him the kingdom, and then the, the Son of Man will come to the earth and defeat the kings of the kingdoms of man on the earth. That's what occurs at the second coming. So this is something that Jesus is alluding to here in verse 28. There are some here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That is, they will see the glory of the Son when he comes as king. Right now, you, you don't see the glory of the Son, but you will see the glory of the Son. And so then, uh, uh, Matthew tells us, after six days... Now, what went on during that six days, we don't know, but Jesus was continuing to teach his disciples many things and probably answering many questions, but they're still probably in that same area of Caesarea Philippi. They could have started headed south, so we're not sure, but they spent those six days, and they're still north of the Sea of Galilee before they head south towards Jerusalem. So after six days, then, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and they takes them aside and takes them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, this is the most intimate circle among the disciples for Jesus. Uh, James and John are the sons of thunder, they're brothers, and then there's Peter. Uh, Peter seems to be the, the, the one who's got the mouth on him that speaks up for the disciples most, but he takes those three with him, and he's going to take them aside for a special uh, revelation. They are going to get that preview of coming attractions. They're going to see what is going, what uh, just a foretaste of, of, of the kingdom. And that's what's described briefly introduced to us in verse 2. He was transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. The verb here is metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. It means a complete transformation. So Jesus is completely transformed. Uh, he doesn't become something else. I think that's important to understand. He is still who he is. He's the God-man, but suddenly it's like this, this veil is removed and his glory shines forth. And this is an important, this is the background to understand this and what is going to be said in the next seven or eight verses is critical to, to take some time and go through an understanding of what the Bible teaches about Jesus as the God-man, what is called the hypostatic union, the union of two substances in one, uh, one person. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. While you're turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to put this picture up here on the screen. This is a picture of Mount Hermon. This is the highest uh, mountain in Israel. They do have a ski area up there, so they have skiing up there all, all winter. But this is located just to the northwest. And if you're standing at Caesarea Philippi there, those of you who've been to Israel remember this. If you're standing there, you can just look up to the, to the northeast, rather, and you can see Mount Hermon. It just stands out. But this could have been, this is the traditional site of the Mount of Transfiguration, but it could have been any number of, of smaller uh, rises that are there up on the Golan Heights. I remember uh, a couple of times when we've been there, the Golan Heights are, 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 it's actually where this picture is being taken from. It's just right there near the base of Mount Hermon. There's a number of hills and smaller mountains, and many of them look like they've grown hair. 
you know, you can just imagine, have you ever seen the, the head of a, an elephant and all this really thick little spiny hair that grows up there? That's what these mountains look like because they're covered in antennas for satellites and for radar and all kinds of things because the Israelis have to uh, keep up with everything that's going on because this is right on the Syrian border. Uh, so there's a lot of these different places there. So this is the traditional site of the Mount of Transfiguration, but uh, we really don't know uh, if that's the actual site or not. Now, when we think about the hypostatic union, what I want to remind us of is that when you go back into the Old Testament, and you look at all of the Messianic prophecies, there are basically two things that are emphasized in these Messianic prophecies. Some of them pull them together in one, but most of them emphasize one or the other. The first is a stream that emphasizes the fact that this Messiah is divine. For example, Isaiah 9.6, he's called uh, a mighty God. Uh, he is called Emmanuel in, in Isaiah 7.14. He is God with us. A number of other places emphasize the deity of the Messiah. And then you have another stream that emphasizes his humanity, that he is also a man. He is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. So that makes him a genuine humanity. He is born of a virgin. So there's a human birth there. So these two were, were not clearly understood by the, by the prophets of the Old Testament or even at the time of Christ. Because they, they just, they, they, some, sometimes, and in, in some of the interpretations in Judaism, they saw two messiahs. Okay, two, they had two different messiahs. So this was somewhat, somewhat confusing, but when we get to the New Testament, it's very clear that Jesus is the God-man messiah. You have deity united with humanity in one person. That's the essence of this term the hypostatic union. Now, the critical passage to look at on this and the central passage, and one of my favorites to study, is in Philippians chapter 2. It's been some time since we've looked at this in any detail, so I thought we would take a little more time to do that this morning and to understand the hypostatic union. Now, the context is there's a little bit of divisiveness and a little bit of a conflict going on in the church at Philippi. Uh, not, not a whole lot, but there's a little bit. And the problem always is arrogance. When two people disagree over something, it's always arrogance. And when you disagree with each other in a marriage, arrogance is lurking uh, somewhere. Uh, when you disagree with a coworker, you disagree with a friend, arrogance is always uh, lurking uh, behind everything. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is the necessity of humility in, in human relationships the necessity of humility. And humility is a poorly understood concept today. Humility, as it's expressed in this passage, is submitting to authority. Moses was called the most humble man in the Old Testament, not because he was just walked over by everybody, because Moses certainly wasn't. He, he exuded authority, and he led three million Jews through the wilderness for 40 years, but because he was submitted to the authority of God. That is the essence of humility, and that's exactly what we see in this particular passage. But in giving this illustration, the Apostle Paul wants, wants us to understand how this is exemplified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins with this command to have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying if you're going to have a have a ministry, if you're going to walk with the Lord, if you're going to go anywhere in your spiritual life, then you need to develop to, uh, this this humility. You need to be able to think like Jesus thought. You need to have a mental attitude like Jesus had. And the word that he uses here is the Greek word phreneo, which means to think or to reason or to have a certain mental attitude or mental outlook. You need to be characterized by this Christ-likeness in the way you look at life, that we are here not to impress people with who we are, but as believers in Christ, we're here to impress people about who Jesus Christ is, and he is to be, be the focus. So he says, have this attitude or this mentality in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, well, okay, Paul, what exactly is that attitude that you're talking about? What exactly do you mean here? And he goes on to explain this in the next verse. He says, who, that refers back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, in verse 7, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, those two verses really nail down what is meant by the hypostatic union. He's fully God, undiminished deity. He's eternally God in all of his essence. And then he adds to that humanity so that he becomes a genuine, true human being, so that he doesn't lose any of his deity, but he adds to it humanity. Now let's see how how this is played out in the exegesis. He uses this interesting word, he existed, uh, huparko, which has to do with existence. Now we're going to see a contrast here, because if you look at down to verse uh, verse 7, where it says he made himself... um, and he came in the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. It uses the word genomai, which indicates in many passages becoming something that you weren't already. So it clearly reinforces in reference to his humanity becoming something he wasn't already. The deity part it all, always existed. So this is, is talking about uh, an eternal existence. And it's a participle and it's concessive, which means that despite what you might think, Something else is true. So that's called a concessive participle, usually translated though or although. Uh, He existed in the form of God. He did not regard uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, this idea of form, this word here is the word morphe. If you study words, words have morphology. If you study anatomy, then you can also talk about the form of different things in the anatomy, and that would be also a term uh, morphology. We get it from this word. And it refers to the nature, the essence of something uh, in this context. And that's further emphasized in just the context by that next phrase, equality with God. It's talking about his divine essence. So it's saying that even though he existed eternally as God, even though he existed eternally with the essence of God, despite that, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. So this statement here is a clear emphasis on his divine essence. And then, and this is reinforced by many other passages. Here's one 
uh, Hebrews 1.3, who being in the brightness of his glory, this is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the effulgence, the, the outworking, almost like an a, a explosion of light, uh, being the brightness of his glory and the express image, the, 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 it's like the stamp of his character is, is the idea in the Greek of his person. Uh, you can't state it any more strongly that Jesus didn't take on divinity. Jesus took on humanity. He was always God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And, and this is affirmed numerous passages. Another one's Colossians, uh, 117, uh, John 1, 1. If you can just think of John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, you can think, find the ver- key verses on the deity of Christ. And then this word regard, that is a word for thought. It's found very various places. For example, a passage we'll be studying when we study handling adversity and dealing with suffering in, in 1 Peter 1, we'll be going to James 1, 2 through 4, and in James 1, 2, it says, count it all joy. Uh, It's a word for thinking, to reason, to work your way through something, to evaluate something. So it's saying Jesus didn't think, he didn't consider when he added up all the data, he says it's not worth holding on to my deity, asserting my deity. I have a mission to accomplish in terms of the plan of salvation. So we could uh, paraphrase this, who, in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed, with identical essence to God, he did not think that deity was something to, to grab hold of, to assert. And so, but interesting question here is, is this thinking part of his humanity or part of his deity? Let you think about that for just a second. It's before he became a man, so it's part of his deity. When he, as pure God... Before the incarnation, before the hypostatic union, Jesus in his omniscience thinks this through, of course, instantly recognizing that uh, it's worth everything for the salvation of human beings. And then it goes on to say in verse 6 that he did not think that this equality with God was something to be grasped. Now, this is an interesting word. The word in the Greek, as I put it up there, is harpagmas, which is a noun form of harpazo. Think about that. Harpazo is the word translated rapture, okay? And it means to snatch or to grab something, to grab hold of something. And so he doesn't think that equality with God is something to be grabbed, something to be grasped. And it has that idea of holding on to something or asserting yourself. So, so he's not asserting his deity. He's willing to give up that which is his natural right as God to have, to enter into human history where he is going to be rejected, where he's going to suffer, where he's going to go through immeasurable and indefinable, indescribable misery on the cross so that you and I can be saved. That's what's going on here. So we paraphrase this, who... The Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think equality with God was a claim to be selfishly grasped after or a claim to be asserted. He's not going to end. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Satan came along and said to Eve, if you eat the fruit, you're going to be like God. And she grabbed for it. Jesus is God and he doesn't grab for it. 
He's willing to relinquish his privileges as God in order to enter into human history and to suffer for us. This is then defined in the next verse. He says, but he emptied himself. Now, a lot of people have debated the meaning over this word empty, but it's clearly a contrast with what, what went on before. And it's it's a word that is found in the Greek. It's the word kanao, and it's often referred to as the kenosis problem. But he empties himself, which which some people say, well, that means he gave up his deity. Well, that's that's not what it means. He never stopped being fully God. When Jesus is in the in 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 the manger, and Jesus is there, and and he's just taking a little nap, he's holding the universe together in his deity. Jesus never gave up being God. He never relinquished one bit of his divine power. What happens in the hypostatic union, what happens in the incarnation, is Jesus is not going to use his deity to solve his problems living in the devil's world. He's going to enter into human history as a man, and he's going to face life just like you and I do to show that by, that, that by depending exclusively on the power of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God, he can handle whatever life throws at him, whatever happens in the devil's world. And so this word kanao means to, it can mean to make empty, but it can mean to divest yourself of a position. And that's the idea here. He's saying, I have a right to my omnipotence, but I'm not going to use it. I have a right to assert who I am and what I am, but I'm not going to do it. If he did, he would have just blown everybody away. You see one tiny little glimpse of that. You all know where that is? That's in John. In the Gospel of John, I think it's in John 19, when the uh, soldiers of, uh, of Herod and, and Pilate come to arrest him. And, and there's just this flash of his deity, and boom, everybody falls to the ground. He just knocks them down. And then they all get up and think, what in the world just happened? And then Jesus just says, okay, I'm yours. Take me along with you. So that just, that just it. He could have just, just totally destroyed them. They, they could have just vanished, lost their existence right there on the spot. But he doesn't assert his authority. He is going to uh, submit, as it were. So he empties himself. Now, how does he do this? And that's really important because these next two lines, taking the form and being made are participles that describe the means. This is how he emptied himself. He emptied himself not by giving anything up, but by taking on humanity, by receiving to himself the form of a bondservant. That's the idea of humanity. It's further identified in the next phrase by being made in the likeness of men. And so, again, this is the idea, uh, the verb here uh, for being made is the word for, is the word genomai, which indicates uh, that he's going to become something he wasn't before. So he empties himself by receiving the form of a servant. That's the same word that's used earlier, uh, being in the form of God, the essence of God. Now he's going to take on the essence of, of servant. So this refers to his immaterial nature, as well as the next word, uh, likeness, at the end refers to his physical nature. So he has his true humanity in terms of his physical body and in terms of his soul and spirit 
his makeups. Because one of the early heresies in the early church was he was he was physically uh, he was he had a human body, he had a human soul, but he had the divine spirit. Well, that doesn't really make him fully God or fully man, and that that heresy was was rejected very early on. So he takes on the form that is the essence of a bond servant. And he is uh, made in the likeness of men. So what we see here is this contrast. So he existed in the essence of God, as I paraphrase this, but he emptied himself by receiving the essence of a uh, of a bondservant. He divests himself of the right to emphasize his deity. He doesn't get get rid of it. He's still fully God. That's why you have these these miracles, such as the changing the water into wine, to show that he's still God. He walks on the water to show that he, he's God. He's in control of creation. And he's being made in the likeness of men. That's that verb, uh, genomai, meaning coming into, uh, coming into existence. So he's in the likeness of man, a word that emphasized both the physical as well as the immaterial aspect of his being. So he empties himself by taking on the form, the nature of a servant, and by coming into existence in the essence of man. This is how he veils his glory. It's still there, but it's now veiled, as someone once said, it's veiled by darksome clay. Okay, You just don't see it, but all of a sudden he exposes it on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this term, hypostatic union, that, I'm, that I've used, briefly defined, refers to the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. He's one person. Whatever he does, one person does it. He doesn't have a humanity that does X and a deity that does Y. That, that's a split personality. He's one person, or, or, uh, uh, one person, Jesus Christ. But you can say that because he changed the water into wine, that shows he's fully God. Uh, when he thirsted, that shows he was fully fully man. When he was tired, when he was weary, when he hungered, that showed that he was fully man. When he walked on the water, that showed he was God and he had control over, over his creation. So those things indicate the two natures that are there, but there's one person who does everything. And those natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. So he doesn't blend together. If he blended together, he, would be, he wouldn't be fully God and fully man. He would just be this mix of something that was not either. It would be a new entity. Uh, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. So, so his attributes don't leak onto the other side. And the union is personal and eternal. A lot of people don't catch that. It's eternal. That means a billion years from now, Jesus is still going to be in a resurrection human body with scars. That will always be there. He will always be humanity. That is always going to be part of his, of his makeup. So he is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person together. So he's found in appearance as a man. And he humbles himself. I'm just going to skip through this for sake of time. His appearance as a man indicate that he's truly human again. And he humbles himself. This is this word in the Greek meaning he submits to authority. He's not asserting his own rights. That was a big deal in ancient Greece. 
you were a weenie and a wimp if you didn't assert your own rights. You have to learn to be assertive. They majored in assertiveness training in, in Greece, but, but not the Bible. The Bible says if you're truly humble, you don't assert yourself over against another, especially if they're an authority. So he humbles himself how? By being obedient to the point of a cross. See, humility is submitting to the appropriate authority when it's time to submit to that authority. That's what humility is. It recognizes your place uh, in that authority chain. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So in verse 9, he says, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his glory comes after the cross. In verse 10 and 11 says, At the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Glory comes later. But what happens in Matthew is that Jesus is going to give a preview of these coming attractions to his disciples and it is something that they will never forget. Peter will refer to back to this in Second Peter, that we didn't follow cunningly devised tales. We saw him in his glory. They were eyewitnesses of that. And so the, the, the tagline that's given at the end of chapter 16, that some of you will see the Son of Man coming in his glory, is fulfilled just six days later when these three disciples see the unveiling of Jesus' glory, and this is something that is, they still don't understand it, as we'll see when we come back to the passage and look at the rest of it next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament, the one who would come to save us from our sins, who would die in our, in our place. And as Isaiah 53 said, he comes to make us righteous and to justify many. And it is by trusting in Jesus alone we have justification before you, not on the basis of our works, but on who Jesus Christ uh, is. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Father, we pray that you would uh, uh, make this clear to anyone who is here this morning who is uh, uh, uncertain about their eternal destiny, perhaps confused, that you would make this sure and certain for them that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and by trusting in him and him alone, you can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us, for we need to come to understand that that future glorification is our glorification and that we live today in light of that future glorification, in light of eternity, and that we need to learn, as Jesus demonstrated, that he humbled himself by obedience. We need to do the same thing if we are going to grow and mature in Christ, that we need to take up our cross daily. We need to be willing to submit to your authority day in and day out that you might mature us because you don't use babies to fulfill your plan. You use mature believers And we need to grow to maturity, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.